0: Amen. Please remain standing and hear the word of our God. Turning to the Gospel of John, I'll be reading chapter 10, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And These are the words of God. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Thus, the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Father, thank you for your word. We have it open before us now, and we pray you would open our minds and hearts and us. Use this word by your spirit to change us, feed us, convict us, grant us and strengthen our faith and do it all to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I've said it uh, many times over and over again, I think it is good to be reminded that as we go through John's gospel, there are always many layers to his writings. John writes in such a way that he expects you to read it over and over and over again and to find many connections, many connections to Old Testament prophecies, many connections within his own writings as he kind of opens up the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 and lays out, remember, there's the seven signs in the first 11 chapters, and then the book of his glorification, the book of his glory in the second half. We are, we are getting toward the end of the first book of these two books that are the gospel of John. We were last in the temple with a group of Jewish leaders who were divided over who Jesus is. That's in verse 19, if you, if you look back again. Um, it says, therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. These were the sayings of Jesus saying that he was the good shepherd and that he was distinguishing himself from the false teachers, the Pharisees, who he called wolves and hirelings. Um, This was not just simply a a sweet passage. This was actually a a stand that Jesus was making publicly against the false teachers um, in Jerusalem. The Jews, and remember when it says the Jews, um, he's not just talking about a a, a, a mob of Jews or or a particular group of them, but the Jewish authorities, those there in Jerusalem who had the authority, both civil and ecclesial, in terms of the order uh, of the city. Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings and many of them said he has a demon and is mad why do you listen to him and others said these are not the words of one who has a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind now between that verse and the next verse two months goes by two months goes by because we move from the feast of dedication uh, from the feast of tabernacles to the feast of dedication um, and so now, now John picks up again, among the crowds, and they press Jesus in this next, pas- next passage, they press Jesus to tell them openly who He is. And I believe they likely have a plan to trap him as well. So let me give a summary of the text that I just read for a minute. During Hanukkah, John records a final public discourse with the Jews as Jesus walked in the temple, That's verse 23. They wanted Jesus to state plainly if he was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Verse 24. The Lord explains why this would be useless to do in the next two verses. He knows that's not their point. They are not of his sheep, in fact, he says, for his sheep hear his voice and follow him. Verse 27. Those same sheep are given eternal life and they will never perish. And because they are in the palm of his hand and the Father's hand, none of them will ever be lost. Verses 28-29. He says that Jesus Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In verse 30, because he claimed to be deity, the Jews take up stones in judgment to kill him in the next verses. Jesus defends his deity and the Father's purposes in verses 34 through 38, for which they again sought to seize him, but he escapes this surrounded crowd around him. Jesus then leaves Jerusalem desolate and returns to where he was baptized by John beyond the Jordan in verses 40 to 41, and that's not just a tag, there's, there's something important there. And during that time, it says in verse 42, many believed in him. Feast of dedication. You don't hear about the feast of dedication in, in the Old Testament. This is not one of the three feast days that, that you were required to go uh, to the temple. The feast of dedication is what we know today as Hanukkah. Now, let's get there in in just a moment, because this is the third feast in a row that we have been dealing with as John's been walking us through Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. Since chapter 5, John has been ordering the ministry of Jesus around feasts. The Passover feast of of chapter 5, we we don't know for sure, it just says it was a feast, but it looks like it was probably the Passover feast, is followed by Jesus feeding the 5,000 and proclaiming that he is the true bread from heaven. So he ties the Passover feast into him being the true bread of heaven, not like the manna that was, that was bred from heaven, but not the true bread of heaven. And then the Feast of Tabernacles comes up in chapter 7 and following. It ends with a water festival, that feast, and Jesus proclaiming that out of the believer's hearts, those who would believe in him would flow rivers of living water, along with the nights in the temple um, where, where the temple was lit with giant candelabras, and Jesus proclaiming that he is the light of the world. Well, now we come to the Feast of Dedications, two months following the, uh, the, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. It's also an eight-day feast, and it was to celebrate the rededication of the temple, which had happened in 164 BC and the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, there, um, there are books that, that write about this. We, don't, we do not believe them to be inspired and part of the canon, but you can read about um, Judas Maccabees. Um, this, so this takes place during the intertestamental period from Malachi finishing the Old Testament uh, about 400 years before Christ. There's no other writings um, of, that are, that are um, inspired writings, but this event takes place back then, and when we come upon the time of Jesus' day, the, the uh, people of God are regularly, annually celebrating this great feast because there's been, there, there was this great deliverance that took place they had been under um, the, the Greeks, uh, following um, Alexander the Great, they had been underneath one of the princes that had been established. Um, I believe it was the, the, the prince was from Syria, he was a Greek, um, and, and he um, had defiled the temple for years with his pig sacrifices, that was referred to as an abomination of desolation, and, and Judah Maccabees and his guerrilla fighters took back the temple. As they, after they took back the temple, they rededicated, they sanctified, they set apart this, this temple, consecrating it to the Lord. And as they did so, they relit the, the temple, the, the candles that would be a part of the temple uh, furniture in, in, in the holy place. They relit the temples, uh, the temple candles, but they realized that they only had oil for one day. So the story goes. But miraculously, the candles continued to burn for another seven days. And that's why you see the menorah lamps, the seven lamps of a menorah candle for Hanukkah. For Hanukkah. Okay, so w- one of the things to just uh, note also about that is you have, um, you have Jesus celebrating a, um, a religious ceremony, a, a special holy day that's not... Uh, that 's not commanded or even described in, in the scriptures, giving us a good indication that it 's okay to celebrate other kinds of holidays like Christmas or Easter, um, and, and have those as annual uh, church celebrations. Jesus was participating, recognizing and was there for the feast of dedication. Now now keep that in mind what, what was taking place that they 're celebrating the deliverance of god 's people by a messiah, by a deliverer one whom God had anointed to deliver them from the enemy and rededicate the temple. Now, in Jesus' day, they're under Roman occupation. They're under Roman occupation, and there are many zealots who want to bring forth a Messiah, we're told, actually, Jesus warns in Matthew 24 and, um, and, and, and just church history, uh, just history tells you that there were many who claimed to be the Messiah, many who claimed to be the Christ in this century to, to overthrow the Roman government and to lead the Jews into, uh, into freedom. So under this Roman occupation, under this time where zealots are looking for a Messiah, under this time where the Romans would be seeking to suppress anyone who would claim to be so... The Jewish authorities surround, it says, Jesus. Uh, If you look at verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him. Interesting, that word is used in Revelation uh, 29 to describe a military siege surrounding the people of God. Okay, This this is a bunch of men with the authority to kill surrounding Jesus and asking him a question. If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. This is a setup. This is a setup to turn Jesus over to the Romans as an insurrectionist. If Jesus openly declares right then and there before all of them that he is the Messiah, it, it, won't, it won't take the meaning that even he would intend by it. That's, that's what's going on. This is why Jesus is so careful to speak the truth and to speak it openly and yet to veil it in certain ways so that he, so he could continue his ministry at, at, at that time. So, he's, it's also, um, John wants us to note that he is walking in the temple, and particularly in Solomon's porch. And Solomon's porch was a portico, it was probably a rebuilding of a section of Solomon's temple to, to, with, um, with a roof and supporting columns all around it. It's just the place for a declaration of a leader to be made. Um, I don't know how many of you remember, you probably don't want to remember, but how many of you remember Obama's first election victory and that night of his celebration where they had, uh, uh, they had this kind of Greek uh, portico all uh, set up on stage and he walked down between the two columns to, to uh, receive the accolades of his victory. That, that's the picture you should have in mind. This is where Jesus is. This, they're surrounding him and they're asking him, are you the guy? You're the guy that is going to get us out of here. But not because they want him to be the guy. That's not what they want. They, they, they know, they know, or Jesus knows, they're not asking this because if he says, yes, I'm the Messiah, they would say, oh, wonderful. Okay, we will now bow down before you and worship you and, and follow you. No, no, most likely what they're going to do is to turn him over to the Roman authorities. But Jesus, and it's interesting because Jesus actually does worse in terms of, uh, of what he brings upon himself. So consider this, he's walking in, in the temple, he's in this portico, and he is um, and he's being asked whether or not he is the great deliverer for the people of God. Verses 25 to 30, let me read them again. I told you and you do not believe, he says. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. We've seen this over and over again in the Gospel of John, the witnessing of who Jesus is being made very clear uh, throughout, throughout, throughout this uh, book so far. He'd been making quite clear who he was. He had openly identified himself as the Son of God, chapter 5, and the Son of Man in chapter 5 and 6 and 9, a clear messianic title. If you understood the Jewish writings, you knew that to be declared the Son of Man was to be the Messiah. He had referred to himself as the bread of life in chapter 6 and the light of the world in chapter 8 and to have been sent from heaven. He had been sent from heaven, he said, in chapter 6, verse 58, and also in chapter 8. These and other teachings, along with his works, were clear enough for his disciples to believe on him as the Christ. The fact that these religious leaders, these ones who were well acquainted with the prophecies of the Messiah, they would know the scriptures quite well. The fact that they did not believe was not because Jesus wasn't clear enough. It was because of something else. Now, Jesus, in his reply, tells us some wonderful things about his work as Lord and Savior. In fact, Jesus replies that in his words and his works together, not only has he declared who he is, but what he's going to do. The problem for these Jews is twofold. These Jewish authorities is twofold. They do not want to believe, but worse, they're not able to believe, and that's what Jesus says to them. Jesus turns to them and says, you can't believe. Jesus does not say that they are not his sheep because they do not believe. Listen carefully. He says that they do not believe because they're not his sheep. This is the mind-boggling doctrine of unconditional and particular election. This along with uh, John 6, 37, 39. Listen to John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father, verse 39, who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. This is the doctrine that that Paul refers to in in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, when he says that he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, set apart, and without blame before him in love. We would be the set apart elect. So here's here's this doctrine: We do not become his sheep because we believe. We do not become his sheep because we believe. Oh, you believe? Okay, you can be my sheep. No, we believe because we are his sheep. We only believe if we are his elected sheep. This is one of the uh, this is one of the doctrines of grace. It was, brought out during the time of the Reformation and, and given, given to the people of God to, to bring them out of some false teachings that were going on in the church and to help establish the fact that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and that it was all the work of God, the justification was all the work of God and not of man at all. There, there are there are five doctrines that are laid out as called the doctrines of grace, and they're often referred to as the five points of Calvinism. They are not all that has to be said about Calvinism. In fact, Calvin didn't write them. They're, they're all, these all take place uh, a century or so after Calvin dies uh, in another battle that is taking place, theological battle that is taking place. But, but the reason, and, and I don't have time here to open up and, dis, and, and uh, defend or, or expound all of, the, all of these doctrines, but I want you to see them. They're, they're right here in the words of Jesus. They're right here in the words of Jesus. So we see here when he says, um, he says, but you do not believe, verse 26, because you're not of my sheep. You don't believe because you're not of my sheep. This is the doctrine of his unconditional and particular election. Now, regardless of the words one hears or the works one sees then, no one is able to believe unless God has chosen them for his own. Again, verse 26 there. And grants them faith. In other words, the, the, the flip side is also true. No one is able to save themselves. No one is able to believe. No one is able to come to Christ because nobody wants to because of our, um, our, our total inability, our depraved nature. We hate God in our original nature. We hate God, and we don't want to have anything to do with him. We, we choose uh, freely, freely from our own nature. It's all free choice, and we freely choose to hate God and to stay away from him, and have nothing to do with him and his ways. We will be our own God left to ourselves, unless we're his sheep. Well, then this is the doctrine of total inability. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, "By For by grace you have been saved through faith. Oh, well, I believe then, right? So faith, save me. No, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, the instrument of faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. So even that faith, that be, the ability to believe is a gift which God gives. Who does he give it to? He gives it to his sheep. He gives it to his sheep. He gives his sheep the gift of faith. So, and then in addition, the saving atoning work of Christ is a definite, completed, efficacious work for all his sheep. The doctrine of the atonement. Listen to verse 27 again. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. There you have it. His atonement works. Now, Brett's going to spend the next five Sundays in Sunday school going through that in, in much more detail. But there it is the definite, efficacious work of, of, of Christ's atonement upon his sheep, for his people. This is accomplished through his perfect and efficacious call. Or irresistible grace. I call my sheep, and they hear my voice. This this is God's work by His Spirit to draw His people to Himself through the declaration of His Word, through His voice, through His voice by by means of the Spirit to hear, and all His sheep will be preserved to the end because they are held in the hand of the Son and the Father. This is sweet, sweet doctrine. The doctrine of the not so much the perseverance of the saints because of the perseverance of the saints is talking about how well I'm going to do to make it to the end. That's not good news. But if the doctrine is the perseverance that perse- I am going to persevere to the end because God is going to preserve me, in other words, I'm held in Christ's hand and nobody snatches me out of his hand, and wrapped around his hand is the father's hand and nobody's going to snatch me out of those hands that hold me. That's good news. My final salvation is not in my hands. Your final salvation is not in your hands. It is in the hands of the Father who sanctified, set apart his Son to come and die for your sins, pay for them all. Done, completed. You, you cannot be charged with those sins again. And the reason that would be double jeopardy they've been paid for. And he will hold you and keep you as you limp through this life, <laughs> following God until that final day where he takes you to be with him forever, forever. That is good news. And, and just, just I want you to just tuck this away, these, these, the doctrines of grace, because I'm not going to spend the time this morning, but just tuck them away, and we'll see this perfectly illustrated in the next chapter in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's as, it's as though Jesus, or as John puts his gospel together, says, hang on, I'll show you how this works. I'll give you an illustration. You can read for it, read it yourself later and see. And then Jesus says, as he finishes this short discourse in verse 30, I and my father are one. Actually, my is not in the Greek text. It's an interpretive decision. I think maybe it should be rendered, I and the father, the father. I and the father are one. Jesus and his father, he says, he's making clear, talking about, you know, he's, he's on the heels there of talking about the fact that he's holding you in your hands until the end and the father has the same purpose. So he and the father are one in purpose, in will, and in power. They are equal in glory and power. It's just as important that Christ is holding you as the father is holding you. He, he sets, uh, sets that out to make sure that it's clear that they are distinct persons, But as the Athanasian Creed says regarding the Son, equal to the Father, the Son is equal to the Father in divinity, he's equal in power and glory, he's equal in the characteristics of being God, in the substance of being God even, but he's subordinate to the Father in humanity. In his his humanity, God sanctified, set apart Jesus as the God-man, and set him apart for a particular purpose— and because the father sent, the father or the son obeyed. The, 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 the son obeyed um, the father. And so Jesus is claiming, though, far more than messiahship. This is why he's getting himself in even more trouble, right? The, 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 what's going to happen, and it's going to be clear in the next verse, he's claiming far more than just simply messiahship, as though he would simply be another Judah Maccabees. And the response of the Jewish authorities makes that abundantly clear. Verse 30. Uh, 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, that's not, this is not just in a fit of anger, although I think it was a fit of anger, but, but this was a judicial act that, that the Jewish authorities are about to do in the temple because another abomination is taking place. This man is claiming to be God. John records two times, two times that the authorities, these judges took up stones to kill Jesus. The first was when he said, um, back in uh, John 8, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Basically, he says, before Abraham was, Yahweh. That's me. And we know that, that's, that they clearly understood that because, and, and, and he's, he's referring back to the name that God gave himself as he spoke to Moses in, in Exodus 3.14. This was a claim of divinity, worthy of stoning for blasphemy if proven false. How could a how could a man be God? Now a second time, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And that would sound an awful like awful like um, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, the, the, basically the declaration statement of faith of a Jew. Um, it's archaeologists will tell you that if you find any um, old, and arch- in, in, you're in Israel, and you're digging up old pottery, and there's some Hebrew writing on it, more than likely, you're going to find the Shema on it. You're going to find Hebrews 6:4 on this. Um, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." And then Jesus has the audacity to say, "I and the Father are one." They say, and make very clear, they should stone him for making himself to be God. And Jesus then gives this cryptic answer. Pick up again verse 33) <coughs> The Jews answered and said, we're not stoning you because of good works that you did. We're stoning you for blasphemy. And because you are being a man, I'm sorry, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then Jesus says, what, what First time, at first blush oftentimes just seems hard words to understand. He says, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified, there it is, and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Have you ever read that and and just thought, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure what we're talking about. Okay, well, I think we can unpack this here together. Let's spend some time. So I, I can paraphrase 34 through 36. Here's my paraphrase. Doesn't your own law that you are so fastidiously following say that you authorities, you Jewish authorities, are gods? If so, how much more should I, having been set apart and sent to the world by my Father, to do his works right before your eyes, be called the Son of God? Your own word, he says, says that the Jewish authorities are gods. And and if that's true, then how is it blasphemy for me, with the works that I have done, having been sent by my Father, how, how could it be wrong for me to say that I am the Son of God? Well... Here's what's going on. Turn with me to Psalm 82. We'll take a look at this psalm. It's very, very very helpful. The quote is from Psalm 82. And you'll find it in verse 6. It's a short psalm, just eight verses. We'll take a look at all of it in just a moment. But uh, verse 6 is where God is is speaking, and he says, I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of God of the Most High. You are gods. What is that? Um, in, in, look at verse 1. Uh, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Let me give it to you from, uh, with some of the Hebrew in it. Elohim, God, Elohim, not Yahweh, but Elohim. Elohim stands in the congregation of the El, the mighty ones, the El. And then using Hebraic parallelism, parallelism now gives the next phrase, saying the same thing or a complementary thing. So Elohim stands in the congregation of El. He judges among the Elohim. He judges among the gods. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, the Elohim. And then in verses 2 through 4, so he just states that this is true. In verses 2 through 4, he says he talks about how these gods have been wicked in their judging. They've been in, they have been wicked in twisting the rule of law. Um, and he says this: How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. So he says he's God is judging the Elohim. God is judging the gods, and he's saying you are judging inappropriately, wickedly, you're, you're, you're twisting the law to your own ends. When are you going to stop it? So that's what happens. And, then, and what he, then he declares that they are fools walking about in darkness, and the very foundations of earth and society are shaken. Verse 5, they do not know, nor do they understand. These are the gods who are judging wickedly. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. The their laws that they have brought about has, have created a society that is now chaotic. I, I started to think this sounded very familiar as I'm working through this. God is saying to the gods, the, the authorities, that they are, in fact, judging in such a way, they are, they are making laws in such a way to, to make this land completely chaotic and hateful of me, not worshiping me, and not, and, and, and calling good evil and calling evil good. When are you going to stop it? And he says, of those gods, he says, of those authorities, you are walking about in, in, in folly, you're fools, and in darkness. He then says... I said, <coughs> I said you are gods, in verses 6 through 7. He says, I said you are gods, but verse 7, but you shall die like men. I said you're gods, but you shall die like men. Now, you might ask at this point, when did God say that, or when did God, Yahweh, say that these judges are gods? And why would he say that? Well, I'll give you two places. Um, it, the word Elohim is translated God, or gods, it's also translated in your Bible several times as judges, okay? So, for instance, in, in Exodus chapter 21, this is a description that if a Hebrew had purchased a Hebrew slave, um, he had to set him free in the seventh year but then picking it up here in, uh, in verse 5 of Exodus 21. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So the master bring him to the Elohim, the judges, the gods. Also in Exodus chapter 22, um, in a list of property rights, Determining whether or not you owe somebody for having killed his ox or you were holding on to someone's material and, and then a thief came. Well, did the thief really take it or did you actually take it? So dealing with these kind of property rights, Exodus 22, if a man delivers his neighbor money or articles to keep and it's stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges, the gods to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, the gods, the Elohim. And whoever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So why are they called gods? Well, they're called gods. Judges are called gods because in that sense... They judge a man's life. They determine whether somebody is going to live or die. They determine whether or not your possessions are going to remain with you or not. They they, they determine whether a crime required restitution. They can enslave and they can set free. They can bring forth a divorce and dissolve a marriage. Something that only God can do. They are gods in that sense. And so in that sense, they are gods. Now, that's not just Bible study. Okay, that's nice Bible study. Thank you very much. No, there's, there's really some deep and wonderful truths to think about here and to see again in the, in the irony of the text that we have before us. So turn back to John and see this. <clears throat> These gods that Jesus says to them, God said, why, why, are, you, why are you so upset that I, I'm saying that I'm the son of God? God said, you guys are gods, right? That's what Jesus is saying. So they're judging and they're judging Christ with blasphemy. They're doing this. Think about the setting here. They're doing this in the temple, in the porch of the wisest judge that ever had been given before Jesus, Solomon, the wisest judge, okay? Solomon, the son of David, okay? They are saying this of the son of David. They are saying this of the good shepherd, who was David, and the greater David, the good shepherd who has promised to come and shepherd his sheep and take them away from the devouring wolves. These gods are judging, like the gods in Psalm 82, and they're doing a really bad job of it. Right at that very moment, they're doing a really bad job of it for their own ends. So they are ju- they're judging, and they want to put Jesus to death, but they are the wicked gods of Psalm 82. Well, what is going to happen to them? Well, listen again. That's the last two verses of Psalm 82. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now, this is the last time that John will record any public ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem until the Passion. His gospel follows a different pattern, some different time scenes, than the other gospels, the synoptics. John's gospel is the only gospel that does not have the Olivet Discourse in it, where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and then delivers this apocalyptic judgment, prophecy, upon Jerusalem. As in Matthew 24, you can also find it in Mark 13, Luke 21. John does not have that in his gospel. And so that was Christ's prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in one generation. Because of the unbelief, because they would crucify the Lord's anointed, Jerusalem would be destroyed. These judges and their priesthood and their temple and their sacrifices and their city, all of it, Jesus is saying, shall die like men. This is John's Matthew 24. This is John's Matthew 24. This is John declaring this is the end of Jesus' ministry in the temple. This is the end of Jesus' ministry to Israel. And Jesus will leave and depart, and he will not return in John's gospel. He will not return again until he comes in the week of passion, where he comes of his own accord to lay down his life as he determines and to bring it up again as he determines, because he is God. Because he is God. Jesus, after his resurrection, would claim, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so again, listen to to the end of Psalm 82. You, you gods, you wicked gods, will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Jesus would rise, would rise, After their false judgment and the crucifixion that they would bring upon him, he would rise from the dead and be given authority over all nations. Just as the Father promised. Psalm 2, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. This is what's going on here in this last discourse, in the last feast that is recorded in Israel by John in his gospel. In verses 40 through 42 then, are not simply a tag, but really, really describing the end of a ministry and what is going to take place. Verses 40, 42. And, and Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan. Well, first 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Jiu-jitsu moves. I, don't you wish he's got a little hint of how he did that? He's surrounded by men who want to stone him. They want to kill him. They believe they have the authority to do so. And, and this is the second time, it, it just tells us cryptically, and Jesus got away. How did you get away? What did you do? <laughs> None of your business. So he does. He gets away. And it says in verse 40, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign. But all the things that John spoke about this man, this witness that John was, and all the things that John had spoken about this man were true, and many believed in him there. The beginning of this passage also is kind of bookending. It not only mentions that it's the Feast of Dedication and that he's in Jerusalem, but also, and not just that he's in Solomon's porch, but it also says, and it was winter. It was winter. Well, if you, if you know your calendar, Feast of Dedication, it's like, it's like saying, it was Christmas, oh, and it was winter. <laughs> right? So, this, signifying, I think, the end of a season, this final feast that is going to take place. This is the end of Jesus' discourse with the re- religious leaders in, the, in this gospel. So they finally try to seize him again, and he escapes out of their hand and departed to where his public ministry had first begun. The end of his three years of ministry is is coming. He goes back beyond the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, the place where Jesus was baptized. His disciples would spend months with him there, and I would wager they would go over all these discourses and the meanings of what these things pointed to, who Jesus was and what he was going to do. It's all summarized there. And then they came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man. Now we have some things recorded that John spoke, but his, the disciples of John followed him for months and months. John said a lot of things about Jesus. And these disciples, it's connecting. These, these followers of John, they've watched the signs of Jesus and it's connecting. They have been pondering this and they see Jesus. So the question is for you is, do you see Jesus? Do you understand who he is? His divinity, his humanity. Why and how the Father sanctified and set apart Jesus. Most importantly, do you believe? Are you one of his sheep? Do you see his power and glory? Do you see his, his wisdom in his discourses? And his authority over all gods, like those gods that were right before him. And like the gods that are your idols, the idols of your heart. Do you see him as having authority over all of them? Because he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. I think we all need time to reflect deeply on what it means that Jesus is the word of God. Listen to these phrases. All, everything that has been given to us in the Gospel of John. Well, I'm not, this is not exhaustive, but it goes quite, it's quite long. Reflect deeply on what it means that Jesus is the Word of God, that He is God, that He's the Lamb of God, that He's the Son of God, that He's the Son of Man, that He's the Bread of Life, that He is the Light of the World, that He is living water that he is the greater Solomon, that he's the son of David, that he is the good shepherd, that he has authority to lay down his life and take it up again, that he calls his sheep and they hear his voice and he gives them eternal life, and that no one can snatch them out of his father's hand. How much time do you think you need to ponder this? Can I encourage you again, as we continue through the gospel of John, to read And reread, let things connect. John wrote this so we would ponder over it. So we would see who Jesus is. And so we would come to believe, as he says in John chapter 20. And there's one more, the seventh sign, still to come. Let's close together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus as our good shepherd, our savior, our Lord. Glory to your name. And to the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, the great forgiver of sins and sinful men. O oh, be our good shepherd. In your name we pray. Amen.